Well, we want to welcome you all this morning to what we hope is our final online service for a while at least. It's good irrespective of the fact that we're online to come around God's Word, and I want to do that just on this second Sunday of Advent. And if you've access to the Scriptures, either on your phone or a tablet or even the Bible itself in book form, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, and it's the first 17 verses. It might seem like a strange reading, but do stick with me, and I trust that you will be blessed and encouraged as I was as I thought about these lovely verses. Matthew begins his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elkayim, and Elkayim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Listen to how Matthew finishes. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You must understand the fact, brothers and sisters, that when we speak about the inspiration of Scripture, it doesn't mean that all Scripture is inspiring. The inspiration of Scripture is that God has superintended the writing of Scripture, that what Scripture says, God says. That doesn't mean that because we teach the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is necessarily inspiring as we think of it. 
that when we turn over the blank page, as it were, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in some ways these first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel, they ought to be entitled, The Story So Far. Because in a marvelous, wonderful, God-ordained way, these 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel summarize for us essentially the story of the Bible so far from the call of Abraham to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe of all the verses in the New Testament, these are the ones that we have the tendency to skip, partly because the very thought of pronouncing all of these names is something of a challenge. But as I say, beloved, this is the story of the Old Testament, summarized as it were, so far. And maybe we read these verses and we think, well, let's just skip those and we'll get into the meat and the substance of the New Testament as quickly as possible. But you know, if we do that, we miss a number of things of great importance. And there are some lovely lessons in these 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. If you notice with me, verse 1, Matthew begins his gospel. He tells us that this is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's obviously, beloved, and again, the first readers of Matthew's gospel would understand that it's, it's a genealogy with a difference. And indeed, it's a genealogy with a deliberate distance, a difference. Uh, for one thing, uh, this genealogy is broken down into three very distinct phases. You've noticed it there, I trust, as you've looked at the scriptures with me. It goes from Abraham to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, and from the exile in Babylon to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham, David, David to the exile in Babylon, from the exile in Babylon to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even more remarkably, as Matthew brings together the details of these three stages. He brings them together apparently in quite deliberate terms, in terms of 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It's fairly obvious, brothers and sisters, from comparing these genealogies with the Old Testament scriptures, that Matthew has quite deliberately missed out certain things in a genealogy as such, and the commentators recognize this. They recognize that it is not Matthew's purpose to give a full genealogy throughout the Old Testament, but Matthew has another purpose in pointing out these 14 generations, and he expects his readers to realize that he has made these omissions, as it were, for a very definite and deliberate reason. What is that reason, Tim? Well, it's simply this. Matthew, Matthew wants to underline that this is not simply an obscure genealogy, but this is a genealogy that's intended to teach us important things, important things about the identity of the one whose genealogy this is. And so Matthew, he has this regular rhythm in what he says as he takes us back to David and again back to Abraham. 
Indeed, his opening words in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a genealogy in three stages, Abraham, David, Jesus. And of course, to his Jewish readers, this is an amazing signal. It's a clear clue to what is going to go on in the rest of his gospel, to what he's going to say about the Lord Jesus, whose birth he's going to immediately describe. It is that the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfills the two great promises that God had given in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. First of all, to Abraham, that through Abraham, he would bring through the seed of Abraham blessings to all the nations of the world. And of course, not only the promise of God to Abraham, but the promise of God to David, that there would sit upon the throne of David, a son of David, who would reign forever and ever. And isn't that what the angel told Joseph, that he would give to his son the throne of his father, David, and on that throne he would reign forever and ever. So these two great promises given to Abraham and given to David, Matthew wants us to see are fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew's deep concern in this genealogy is that you and I should never ever lose sight of where this family tree is going, nor of the lessons that it's meant to teach us about our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. You know, brothers and sisters, there are as many lessons in these verses as there are names, but I want to give you three, three lessons as we gather around the scriptures this morning, three lessons that I think Matthew is teaching us about the way in which the promises of God come to fulfillment in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is simply this. There is no unreliability in God's promises to us. There is no unreliability in God's promises to us. This is why, and you know in many ways this is a, a very messy and untidy family story. I mean, if this were your family tree, if this were your family story, I'm sure there are names here that you would rather put your finger over and cover. The whole story is told like this to underline for us that even if through 2,000 years of history, God's ways at times seem to be, you know, tremendously untidy and, and messy, and they, they go down alleys that we wouldn't expect them to go. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, God's promises are always reliable. God's promises are always reliable. And look at this genealogy. I mean, two of the most untidiest moments in this genealogy are in the life of two of its principal characters, Abraham and David, two significant figures. Think about the way in which God gave his promise to Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis and the number of ways that Abraham and his wife Sarah contrived to mess up the promises of God, to take God's promises into their own hands and tell him the way in which God's promises, they would fulfill them in their own way. The whole story of Abraham, it's a story of tremendous untidiness, tremendous failure on 
on Abraham's part. And yet through it all, through it all, God was fulfilling and keeping his great promise. Or think of David. In some ways with even greater personal lapses than those of Abraham. And indeed, did you notice in a very guarded and in a very chaste way, as it were, Matthew alludes to that when he says in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And he's underlined for us that even in the midst of all of this apparent untidiness and chaos and confusion and downright sin, God was working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. We might put it this way, God has a 2,000 year long perspective on the way in which he will keep his promises. And therefore, brothers and sisters, you and I need to learn not to insist that he will keep his promises to us in our way and at our back and call and in our time and preferably right now. As Tim Keller reminds us, we would answer our prayers the way in which God answers them if we knew all that God knows. For God, brothers and sisters, sometimes seems slow to fulfill his promises. His directions, his detours sometimes are very, very perplexing. And brothers and sisters, beware. Beware of the Christian who tells you that they know the details of what God is about in their lives. Uh, such a person, I don't think, has ever really exposed themselves to this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, even in the midst of confusion and chaos, this is God's promise. There is no unreliability in the promises or indeed in the providences of God concerning us. Maybe you're beginning to entertain the notion that God no longer heeds you, that God is unable and unwilling to help you. Maybe you're even tempted to complain Aware of your own frailties, you're beginning to think that somehow or another God has forgotten. Listen, brothers and sisters, let this genealogy challenge all such notions. Turn your gaze away this morning. Turn your gaze away from yourself and from your anxieties to who God is. And look away from what you are and indeed what you might be and what you thought you would be. And look to all that you are in Christ. And it's not, brothers and sisters, that God is so great that he cannot care. Rather, it is that God is so great that he cannot feel. There is no unreliability in the promises of God to us. They may seem tangled. They may seem twisted. They are at times absolutely impossible to penetrate. And many times when touching them, it is painful. Yet God's providences, God's promises are perfectly ordered. Isn't that what Kuiper wrote when he wrote that beautiful hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon the storm. Many times, isn't that our problem? We can't see footsteps on the sea. 
And so Cooper writes, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't judge the Lord by what we can see or what we can hear or what we can touch. Judge not the Lord by our feeble senses, but trust him for his grace. For behind a seemingly frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Brothers and sisters, there is no unreliability in God's promises to us. They are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is no difficulty that can halt God's purposes for us. There is no difficulty that can halt God's purposes for us. There's, there's this rhythm that is built into Matthew's genealogy, and it gives us such a, a regular sense of the footprint of God, as it were, as it regularly moves through history. But when you read it, there's something and it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's kind of like Enoch there in Genesis 5, when you have a similar thing, you know, this one begot this one and was the father of this one. And on and on it goes, there's this rhythm and pattern. And then all of a sudden, Enoch, Enoch was not for God took him. He walked with God and he was not for God took him. And then it goes back to the rhythm of this one begat that one and on and on it goes. And suddenly here in this genealogy there seems to be a, an interruption in the symphony. And out of nowhere unexpectedly four names appear. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And you look at that and you say, what's so strange about that? Well, the first and most obvious thing, of course, is simply this, that they're all women. And genealogies characteristically trace the lineage down through the fathers. And so our eyes are supposed to be drawn to this. Not only this, but these women, they, they come, as it were, from beyond the borders of God's covenant people. Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. Then we remember that there's something else that these women have in common. Tamar, if you remember, she pretended to be a prostitute in order to have a child by her father-in-law Judah. Rahab was the woman in Jericho who ran as it were a house of ill repute, the sort of place that would have a red light bulb on outside it. Ruth, she was a Moabitess who married into a disobedient Hebrew family. And of course, Bathsheba. You can read of her in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. She was the woman who by her complicity, her complicity in the king's will, she, she brought pain and heartache into David's house. And she isn't even mentioned by name here, as I've said already in verse 6. She's referred to the wife, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You look at that, Tamar, Rahab. Ruth, Bathsheba, you look at that and you say, what's the message? Well, it's an amazing message, brothers and sisters. The message is simply this, the why God does not treat sin lightly. God is not paralyzed by my sin. 
why God does not treat sin lightly. God is not paralyzed by my past sin. God is able to bring pardon and restoration. He is able to raise up those who have sinned grievously, flagrantly, and bring them into his gracious purposes again. We sometimes think of that as the message of Calvary. Remember, as the Apostle Peter, he proclaims it. He says that what wicked men's hands did was all part of the overarching purpose of a sovereign God. Their sin could not halt God's saving grace. And oh, brothers and sisters, is this not the great message of the gospel? That there is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in my heart. Remember how Paul put it as he summarized the whole history of the world since Adam. He says in the book of Romans where sin abounded. Oh, if you're at home and you're listening, you can finish that, I guarantee it. Where sin abounded, I, grace did much more abound. That's the message of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This genealogy is a story of sin abounding, but the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is a story of where sin abounded, grace will much more superabound. That's a message for some who have hidden in our hearts, who have hidden in our hearts because of our sin, because of our failure, perhaps even a particular sin and failure, that there is nothing left for us now but to be paralyzed by our past. Listen, brothers and sisters, that's unbelief. It's not believing in the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, which is simply this, that there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will reach out to him in repentance and faith, there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that will not only cover your sin, but grace that by his grace will bring your life into the very center of God's purposes and use you for his own honor and for his own glory. So there is no unreliability in God's promises to us. There is no difficulty that can halt God's purposes for us. And thirdly and finally, there is no obscurity that can hinder God's work through us. There is no obscurity that can hinder God's work through us. This genealogy in these first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel essentially traces the origin, the rise and the fall of the house of David. And what a fall it was as this genealogy traces the royal bloodline to where it was around the year A.D. 1. And where is that royal bloodline? It's in a carpenter and his expectant teenage wife who has given birth in an obscure town called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And it's in a manger, in a cave, at the back of an overcrowded inn. That's where God's promises lie, buried in total obscurity. 
in this lineage. Some of us, we know absolutely nothing about. We wouldn't even know where to find some of these names in the Bible. And even if we could find them in the Bible, there's not even that much in the Bible about them. But what's the message? The message, brothers and sisters, is this, that God not only works through the public and the great ones, as it were, in the community of his people, but God works steadily, continually, through the obscure ones, the hidden ones, and the obscure ones and the hidden ones are just as essential to his purposes as the public, the upfront, the out there, the great ones. The hidden ones, the obscure ones, are equally necessary links in the way in which God is fulfilling his will. And he delights to take the obscure and confound the public. He delights to take the weak and confound the strong. He delights to take the simple and confound the wise. It's his way. And this genealogy of the Lord Jesus, that royal bloodline from which he received his humanity, because you remember, you do understand, don't you? His humanity did not come from heaven. His human nature came down through this royal bloodline, down through the birth canal as Mary as he was born, this line into himself. He was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, at the moment of his conception, takes up into his sovereign plan and purpose the obscure in his kingdom to use them marvelously for his glory. Do you know why he did that? Because this pair, this pair, Mary and Joseph, they had absolutely set their hearts on receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to lay that upon you this morning as we finish. Mary and Joseph had absolutely set their hearts on receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary had said to Gabriel, Be it unto me according to your word, for enough. I have set my heart to receive this Christ. The same with Joseph. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the great key. When you and I at this Christmas season, when we have set our hearts on having and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, as Mary and Joseph did, receiving him as Savior and Lord, and in no other way, when we do that, you will discover that there is no unreliability in God's promise to you. The prophets had said he would be born a Jew in Bethlehem, and he was. The prophets had said he would be exiled in Egypt, and he was. The prophets had said he would be brought up in Nazareth, and he was. He would be betrayed by a friend, and he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, rejected by his own, mocked, crucified, die violently between thieves and be buried in a rich man's grave and that he would rise again the third day and he did and still today on this Sunday in December we rest on the promises of God because as I've said there's going to be yet another advent a second coming yet to take place. And for that we look. There is no unreliability in God's promises.
to us. There is no difficulty that can halt God's purposes for us, and there is no obscurity that can hinder his work through us. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, There shall always be upon the earth a people to worship God. There shall always be upon the earth a people to worship God. Listen to Psalm 102, and with this we'll finish. Psalm 102 and verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will all pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now notice verse 28 of Psalm 102. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Again, brothers and sisters, I recognize that that doesn't solve your personal despondencies or the difficulties that you might be going through or the fears that you're feeling at this time. But for me personally, I'll tell you what it does. It doesn't matter what my problems are. It doesn't matter what my despondencies are. It doesn't matter what my difficulties are. It doesn't matter what my fears are. I know that God has a people and that I'm part of that people. And he will preserve those people. And there's nothing and there's no one that can hinder that. And that builds underneath the floor of my life, as it were, a solid rock. In the bottomless pit of my sometimes despondent heart. And as you and I approach another festive season, it's almost as if Matthew is saying to us, you know what? Before you look into the manger and see the Savior lying there, step back a wee bit. Step back a wee bit and get the big picture which that manger alone explains. And so this genealogy tells us to those who welcome the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of God prove to be reliable. The difficulties that we experience, even in the way in which God works his purposes out, even in our own sin, those difficulties are overcome by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how obscure we may feel ourselves to be, God brings us as a link, as it were, into his glorious chain of purpose to bring others to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to discover the joy of his presence. I trust that these first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel have blessed your heart. There is no unreliability in God's promises to us. There is no difficulty that can halt God's purposes for us. And there is no obscurity that can hinder God's work through us. Matthew teaches us at least those three lessons. 
And God, this morning, bless his word to each and every one of our hearts for his own glory and honor. Amen.